Now, we're in Isaiah. If you are our guest today or you're new to grace, uh, we are working through the Old Testament book of Isaiah in preaching, in community group discussions, and as I said a moment ago, praying even from this book. And here's a temptation that I have. I've said it over and over, but my temptation each week is to review everything I've already said from the book of Isaiah or wherever it is we're preaching so that everyone will have the background and the context, but that is impossible. So two things I would say. One is all of this is online. It's on the website, so you can go back and listen to past Isaiah sermons to get context to, if you're new to this with us. Uh, and two, I am going to give just enough context in a bit after we read together so that you'll know where we are. But today, I'm going to give you the summary, and then we're going to stand and read uh, the passage. But the summary is this. This passage contains a two-sided affirmation, okay? One side is negative. There are no gods, no idols. Idols are false, and it is foolish, and it is futile to give ourselves to them in whatever form they may exist, material or mental, individual or cultural or religious or secular, no idols. That's the negative side. The positive side is God. The Lord God is God. The God of the Bible is God. He is Redeemer. He is the rock, as we will see, rather than dwelling in wood, stone, and metal, or even in our imaginations. He dwells in the flesh, bone, and blood of the man, Jesus Christ. Fear not. He is in control. He is with us. That's the message for today, but of course, I'm going to preach a lot longer than that. Stand with me in honor of God's Word. Isaiah 44, beginning in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid, for have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol? That is profitable for nothing. Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame. And the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified and they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line and marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in his house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. 
Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat and roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, an idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in a fire, and also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself to say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and he will be glorified in Israel. This is God's word. You may be seated. Wow, what a text. Hebrew scholars have pointed out that Isaiah is a literary genius. You can hear the satire and the irony, the ridicule and the scorn for idols and for those who make them and bow down to them. But we hear also the very straightforward statements of spiritual blindness and sinful pride, and the devastating results of idolatry. And still, Isaiah manages to begin and end with theology. We're going to call it monotheism, one God. And still, he begins and ends with grace. God has redeemed his people and he makes the whole thing sound like a really good sermon because he includes exhortations. He's moving upon the hearts of these people and upon their wills with words like fear not, remember, return, repent. What a passage this is. But why this passage? Why a passage on idolatry? in this part of the book of Isaiah? Well, for these reasons. One would be to remind these people, to remind them of why they were in exile. They're there because of the sins of their nation and of their kings, which are idolatry. That's why they're captive. If you read 2 Kings 15, just if you're, if you're a homework person, here it is. 2 Kings 15, and just put a dash and finish out the book. It's not that long. And then 2 Chronicles 26, dash, finish out the book. You will read of the kings 
that are in this time that we're talking about in Isaiah. Some of them honored the Lord, and some of them led God's people to do what was right. But some of them, like Ahaz and Manasseh and others, did, quote, evil in the sight of the Lord. And that included idolatry. Just like we're talking about here, two of them at least went so far as to offer their own sons as sacrifices like the pagan nations. You say, that's unbelievable. Until we hear of some of the bizarre, manipulative, immoral, and abusive messages and behavior of so-called preachers and leaders today. So the Lord is reminding them, and He's reminding us, of sin that gets us into this place. The second thing the Lord, I think, is doing in this passage in Isaiah, the Lord is doing through Isaiah, is He's purging the people. They're in captivity. They know of the idolatry, and now He is bringing it to their attention to purge them of the practice and even the thought of it. Now, there is a history to idolatry after the exile, but for the most part, there is no record of any kind of idolatry in the nation of Israel to this extent after the exile. God purged them. Another thing he's doing is he's giving them hope. He's saying with these great declarations that he alone is the one living in true God, their Redeemer, their rock, their King. He's absolutely in control and he is with them. But one more thing he's doing is he is declaring to the nations, to the nations, that the Lord only is God. To the nations. We tend to think that God is only for certain people. God is only, Yahweh I am, is only for the Israelites. Christ is only for Christians. The Bible declares that Jesus is Lord of all. He's not a local deity. He's the Lord of all. And so this is a declaration to the nations that their idolatry is foolishness and futile and that God is Lord. The relevance of this denunciation of idolatry and pronouncement of the Lord God as the only God is for us today. It was John Calvin who said, the mind of man is a perpetual forge of idols sometimes translated as the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. We're always making idols, whether they are figurines or in our imagination. And the message is Jesus is Lord. So here we are in a passage about idolatry, but mostly about the lordship, the uniqueness of God. Three parts to this. I'm going to, here's the structure. If you're an outline person, here it is. Number one, the sole and absolute lordship of God. That's going to be point number one. The sole, S-O-L-E, the sole and absolute lordship of God, verses five through eight. And then we're going to hear about the folly and the futility of idolatry and idols, verses nine through 20. And finally, we're going to come back to the grace of God calling us to remember, return, and rejoice. The first part of this, the first point is that the Lord is God. Solely and absolutely, the Lord is God. Verses 5 through 8. Here's a question for you. Who is God? 
what is God? Go home today and sit down and try to type out or write out your definition of God. <laughs> Here's mine, Genesis 1-1 through the end of Revelation. <laughs> Not really. Here, here, here's, this is a stab. The one, only, unique, sovereign, living, independent, eternal, perfect being. We could go on and on, but that's a start. His name is I am. I am who I am, he called himself. He created, he sustains, he governs all things. He gives all things meaning, gives life itself meaning and all things in it. He has a purpose and a will and a plan, which includes humans and includes all of creation. And he will accomplish this. This is God. We could go on. More is going to come as the passage unfolds. But that's a good starting place because this is the witness of God himself. The Lord said of himself, he only is God. Verse 6, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Now, the Lord has already said this. He said it in Exodus chapter 3, Exodus chapter 20. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment, have no other gods, is based on the reality that there is no other God beside the Lord. The Lord said he is the first and the last. It means he's the beginning and the end. He's before and after history and creation. He is eternal. He said, beside me, there is no other. He is sole, only, singular, the only one, alone in Godness. Verse 7, he declares what is to come and what will happen from of old. He has appointed an ancient people. So he has appointed, declared, and brought it about. That means he's sovereign. And verses 6 and 8 says he is their king. He's their redeemer. He is their rock. That means he's their savior. So who is the Lord? He is the Lord God, eternal, one and only, sovereign, Savior. This is the Lord. In verse 7, the Lord God puts out a challenge. He says, who is like me? Now, the idols are dead. They are inanimate objects. The Lord knows they can't hear his challenge, and he knows they can't reply. He's speaking to his people who can hear. So he says something like this, come on idols, and if you've made one, bring it. Line them up before me. Tell me the meaning of the past events of history. Tell me, what do they mean? Tell me what is to come. This is all in verse 7 tell, and, and 8. Tell me what's to come. You tell me. Tell me what you've accomplished. I'm listening. Now really what he's saying is he saying, my people, my people, are you listening? Are you listening to me? I'm challenging the idols. I'm challenging the idol makers. I'm challenging you who have bowed down to these. I'm challenging you. Are you listening? He's saying, world, are you listening? Jesus Christ is for the nations. He is for the world. And we call this the Bible Belt. Thinking sometimes that Jesus is confined to the Bible Belt. Jesus is Lord. Are you listening, he says. Verse 8, 
you're my witnesses. You are my witnesses, my people, that the idols can't do the things I'm telling them to do because there's only one God and I am He. There's a play on words here in verse 8. Isaiah is a genius. There's a play on words here. He says, there is no rock. I know not any. Well, there's no stone that's stone idol that's God, and yet God is calling himself, as he did in Deuteronomy 32 and Isaiah 17, he's calling himself the rock of salvation and the rock of refuge for all who believe. Now, what are these verses doing? These verses are revealing a word, a, a truth in a word, and I'm going to say it to you, monotheism. It's a word we use in theology. It's not that complicated. Mono, one, theism, God, one God. It's declaring it as a reality. There is one God. Now, at this time, in the time of Isaiah's day, monotheism was uniquely Jewish in this context. Today, Christians and Muslims are monotheistic. But in Isaiah's day, he was presenting something that was unique because God had revealed himself as the one living and true God. Now today, Christians and Muslims are monotheistic, but don't be confused, okay? Don't be confused because the monotheism of the Christian faith, the belief in one God in the Christian faith, is radically different from that of Islam because of the, because of the rock of offense which is Jesus Christ. When he enters the picture, you see, we see the difference in this understanding of monotheism that we're, that we're going to see in just a moment. Which leads us to say this, we, we can say this, that a monotheistic faith, meaning belief in one God, is not enough to be reconciled to God. It's the starting point. You gotta, you've got to believe that there's one God as a starting point. It's a necessary starting point, but it's not enough. Let's keep going. What do we do about Jesus Christ and the practice of worshiping Jesus Christ? Is, is worshiping Jesus Christ consistent with monotheism, the truth that there's only one God? Or, or as some would say, are Christians practicing idolatry? Because we worship Jesus Christ, who they would say or think is someone other than God. Well, the unfolding of God's Word gives the light, doesn't it? And as the revelation continues, we come all the way to the last book of the Bible, which is called Revelation, chapter 1 and chapter 22. Jesus himself is quoted with these lines from Isaiah and from Exodus. I am the first and the last the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is claiming to be what Isaiah is talking about here as the one living and true God. We come to John chapter 8. The religious leaders are interrogating Jesus about how he measured up to Abraham. Abraham is their father, their, their religious figure. Jesus, how do you measure to Abraham? You're not greater than Abraham, are you? And Jesus said in John 8, Before Abraham was, I am. Now that is not bad grammar. That is a claim to deity, which means godness. The word deity means godness. 
and Jesus got it from God, Exodus 3, and he's saying, I am him. And then here's another one, Colossians 3. I'm going to read this one to you. Or Colossians 1, I'm sorry. Colossians 1, I'm going to read this to you, beginning in verse 15. Because we're talking about, remember what we're talking about here. Is it, is it idolatrous for us to worship Jesus Christ when we say there's only one God? Jesus says, I am that God. And here's what the Colossians witnessed to Jesus. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. I, I read that too quickly. He is the image of the invisible God, now, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. By him all things were created. Who created all things? God. By him all things are created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He, Jesus Christ, is above all things. In him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. There's Isaiah language. The beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For, and here is a verse, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's not inconsistent. Or idolatrous for us to worship Jesus as a monotheistic people because we affirm that in Jesus all the fullness of God dwells. Jesus Christ is God. The second commandment, Exodus 20, verse 3, is that you shall make no images. Why? Because God does not dwell in images. He does not, God does not dwell in wood, stone, and metal or even our mental images that we assign to God. God is not there. God dwells in a man with flesh and blood and bone. His name is Jesus Christ. That is called the incarnation. God taking humanity, human flesh, flesh is the word in incarnation, God taking flesh to himself and becoming a man. And the fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ dwelt among us that we might see God. So along with the revelation here in Isaiah 44, along with the revelation of monotheism, the Bible is revealing the incarnation, God taking on the form of a man, and the Bible is revealing the deity of Jesus Christ. And both of these are necessary to be reconciled to God. We must believe that God is one and there's only one God, and we must believe that he dwells in Jesus Christ, the deity of Jesus Christ. And some people come to both of these at the same time. They just assume, well, I trust in Christ, that means I believe in one God. Or they've always been what they would consider to be monotheistic, and then they come to faith in Jesus Christ. Others, though, have come to one first and then to the other. In other words, they, they come to the belief in God first, and then they come to see that God is in Jesus Christ, and Christ is, is the divine, and they trust in Christ. C.S. Lewis was like this. He had two conversions. You can read about this. There's a, there's a documentary right now out called The Most Reluctant Convert. You can see this. He had two conversions. His first conversion was he went from being an atheist 
to believing in God. So he went from being an atheist to a theist. And he believed there was only one God. So he said atheist, theist, monotheist. And then later, he moved from being a theist to a Christian. Because he came to see who Jesus Christ is. The point of all this is that the Bible teaches that to be saved, to be reconciled to God, our faith is in the one living and true God who is in Jesus Christ, who secured our salvation for us by dying on the cross and being raised from the dead. God the Son on the cross in our place. Do you believe this? That's our first point. Only one God. Soul and absolute. Second point is this, the folly and the futility of idols and idolatry, verses 9 through 20. Now, we tried to define God a moment ago, and now I want to see if we can come up with a definition for idolatry and idols. You know, you might just say, I don't know how to define it. I just know when I see it, and I know it's not good. Well, let's put some words to it. Idolatry, when something, anything, Material, mental, experiential, when something moves God from His rightful place in our lives as individuals or in the many lives of a religion or a society or a culture, and then we come to trust that something. That'd be called idolatry. An idol is that something in whatever form. Again, it might be material wood. It might be an experience. It has an ideal, a mindset to it, a goal, a philosophy, a desire is driving it. And whatever that is, we pursue it. We rely upon it. We trust in it ultimately. And the commonality of all idols doesn't matter if it's the 33 million in the Hindu religion or whether it's the one, the big one that's residing in your mind right now. The commonality of all these idols is that they originate with us. They, they come from our human pride. And they are all the outworking of ourselves. They are all the projection of ourselves onto something, a thing, an idea, an experience, and that begins to take over our lives. Idols are an expression of ourselves that then take over ourselves. God is of himself. And the way we know God is that God reveals himself. and He reveals himself to us in word. And Jesus is even called the word. God is God. Idols are human expressions of, you ready for this? Of sinful humanity. God is God. Idols are human expressions of sinful humanity. To worship God is to worship God. To worship an idol is to worship ourselves. Because we've already seen in verses 6 and 8, there is no other God. It is foolish and futile to worship ourselves. Why? Isaiah's already told us in chapter 40, we are grass. Our beauty fades 
when the breath of the Lord blows on us. Again, Isaiah 40, all men are dust. Isaiah 2, stop regarding man. Listen to how the Lord puts it in verses 9 and 10. This interesting, it was very interesting, wasn't it, when reading 9, the rest of that of that uh, portion there about the, the fashioning of the idols. So interesting. Listen to how the Lord says it in verse 9 and 10. He said, those who fashion the idols and the idols themselves are nothing. Once again, a play on words, fashion. The Lord has fashioned his people. The Lord has formed his people. Here now his people are fashioning idols. He says, they profit nothing. They are of no value for this life of the soul and life, the, the life of the soul and life with God. That, that's the problem with worshiping and giving ourselves and relying upon anything else other than God is that it's of absolutely no profit for the life of the soul. And it's the life of the soul that lives on. It's in the life of the soul where we meet God. It's the life of the soul where we're human. Only God can meet us there. Verse 11 why is it foolish and futile to worship idols in ourselves? Because idols bring to shame. They disappoint. We're embarrassed over them because of their failure to deliver. Of course, why? Because he says in verse 11, the craftsman who makes the idol is himself only a human. Humans can only make human things. Verse 12, the ironsmith. He grows weary. Look at it. He's hungry. He's, he's thirsty. No water. He faints. He grows weary while he's making his idols. If he grows weary while, he, while he's making his idols, how can his idol be anything else than something that will grow weary? Because it's a mere projection of himself. Verse 13, the same is true with the carpenter. The carpenter makes an idol, a figure into a man that's beautiful. But it's made of the same wood that's going to be used to start a fire. This is interesting. I mean, listen for it. Listen to it. what he's doing here, the, 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 the satire and the irony of what is being said here. Verses 14 through 17. He selects a piece of wood. He even grows his own tree for a purpose. Of course, he needs some, some rain to nourish it. Where's he going to get that, God? Then with the same tree... He makes a fire so that he can warm himself and so he can bake his bread. And then, with the other part, he makes an idol so he can worship. So he, he worships something which is just a mere extension of himself, something he's made with his hands, that, if he's not careful, can get mixed up with the firewood. And if he's not looking closely, he can toss it in the fire and then his idol his god vanishes in about 20 minutes or so do you see what's happening here now the craftsman and by the way i know your image i know you've got an image in your head it's hard it's hard not to have an image in your head and we're talking about images you're thinking about just wood I, I want you to see more than just wood i want you to see our own philosophies our own mental images the things we project on god can will be consumed in less than 20 minutes now the craftsman could have stopped. The craftsman, the ironsmith, the carpenter could have made their tools, fashioned some very useful, beautiful furniture, 
built a great house, used a lot of ingenuity and a lot of creativity and a, with a lot of aesthetic quality, and they could have enjoyed it, and it could have been used in service to themselves and their families and, and to others, and doing so could have brought great glory to their maker because the maker supplied all the resources for it and the maker endowed them with all the gifts and the skills and the abilities to make it and you would have called the craftsman an artist last night we enjoyed night of the arts with the youth group here and it was art and it was beautiful and that's the way God intended it you take the things the resources God gives you and use the abilities and the skills and you develop them and you call it art and it's beautiful and it's good and it glorifies God but instead, the craftsman took the things given by God and he made things with them to take the place of God. And then he began to worship and serve his own creation, the extension of himself, which is called idolatry. The tree was supposed to serve the man. The man was not supposed to serve the tree. The tree was supposed to be for God's glory. The tree was not supposed to be treated like a god. You say, what's the relevance of all this? It's, it's Romans 1 and Colossians 3 relevance. That's what it is. The relevance of idolatry. Idolatry is mentioned in both of those chapters. Romans 1 and Colossians 3. That's why I'll limit what I've got to say here to just those chapters, because we could say a whole lot more. But to, in those chapters, we, we hear of replacing the glory of God with the glory of man. And then we hear of becoming enslaved and ashamed and disappointed by our own creation, our own so-called glory. In those chapters, especially Romans chapter 1, we hear of putting created things above the Creator. The creator who tells us the proper use of all things. And when we put the created thing above the creator, those things become idols and we become enslaved to them, which is a part of our addiction. And then it eventually turns on us and destroys us. Romans 1 and Colossians 3 actually speak of two, two relevant idolatries. One is sex and the human body, and the other is greed and covetousness. Romans 1 placing sex and the body in the place of God. That means making sex and the body ultimate reality to be pursued above all, at all cost, makes it an idol. And when we do that, we push this beyond the bounds that are set by the one who gave us sex in the body, which is God himself. And when we push that beyond the bounds of this gift that God has given us, it becomes for us an idol to which we become addicted. And then that results in deviant practices and perversions, including multiple partners and homosexuality. Yes, that is in the Bible. It's very clear in the Bible. And it's also the state of the human heart. Colossians 3, still speaking of the sexual immorality, includes greed in this. And he says it amounts to idolatry because it is taking what we didn't know. The people that he's talking to here didn't know how to enjoy what God gave them according to God's will. 
But instead, they take the things God has given, the physical things of this earth, and they push beyond the limits of contentment and using them for the glory of God into making them as their own gods, and they become greedy for them, pushing them more and more to excess and destruction. It's idolatry. Verses 18 through 20, back to our text in, in Isaiah 44, verses 18 through 20 says these people don't understand this. They can't, the idolaters, the idol makers, they can't see what's going on. That's Romans 1. God has given people over to the hardness of their own heart. And here in, in Isaiah 44, they're not able to see, they're not able to discern that in the right hand is a lie. Can you see it? Here's permission to envision. Don't create a mental image of God, but here's a, here's a permission to envision. Can you see the idol maker, the craftsman? He's got his idol right there in his right hand. And he doesn't have the discernment to say, that's a lie. May God give us the discernment. The ability to see that whether, whether we're holding it in our hand or whether we're holding it in our mind, whether we're holding it in our heart, whatever philosophy, whatever, whatever thing about our society, our culture, your individual loyalties, whatever, whatever it is we're holding on to that we're, that we're depending on as God, may God give us the discernment to say, that's a lie. Verse 20, this idol maker feeds on ashes. Oh my goodness, somebody threw his idol in the fire and it burned up. Whatever we pursue other than God will become for us the ashes on which we feed. Our dignity, meaning our true humanness, is not affirmed it is not enhanced by worshiping ourselves and projections of ourselves and our desires. It's not. Our true humanness is experienced when we live with our Creator, reconciled to Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the final point. Grace. God calling us to remember and return and all of creation rejoicing when we do so he goes through this portion about idols and he's he's made his point the lord has and he said stop making these idols stop worshiping these idols i'm the only god and then he says in verse 21 remember remember these things what things oh all the way back to the beginning genesis 1 1 the lord spoke and the world was created. Genesis 12, remember these things that God called you as a people through Abraham. I say to you, brothers and sisters, remember that God has called you through the grace of his, Lord, of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember this? He says to his people, remember Moses? Remember the Exodus? I am. I told you who I was when I brought you out. Who should, Moses, who am I going to tell him sent me? Tell him I am sent you. Tell him God sent you. Remember that. In the immediate context, remember these things. What? Remember, verse 21, that I formed you, that you're my servant, that I won't forget you. Do you remember this, brothers and sisters? Is your memory sharp today that you're in the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that, you're, that you belong to him, that he won't forsake you, he won't leave you, he loves you, he's not going to forget about you, he forgives you of your sins? Are you remembering this today? We could expand it to say, according to the text, remember monotheism. Remember there's only one God. It'll be, you'll be tempted. You will be. It's coming. 
Oh, but they're so sincere in their belief. I'm not making fun here. I'm saying you're going to hear this, and it's going to tug at your heart. Because you say, how can anybody be wrong when they're so sincere? Because God said there's only one God. Remember the deity of Christ? It's coming. It's coming to you. It's going to tug at your heart. It's going to confuse your mind because you say, oh, but it, they, they believe in something. No, they, no, we, not they, we, we have to believe in Jesus Christ. It's true. It's real. Remember this. It's hard to remember it in the heat of the moment, in the pressure. Remember the intolerance of God toward idols in your own life. God won't tolerate those idols in the other religions. God won't tolerate the idols in our hearts. But remember his salvation. He is so good. He is so gracious to save. He loves you. And all of this reality, all of this planting ourselves in the truth, in the reality of, of monotheism and the deity of Christ is so He can lead us on the path to Jesus Christ, His Son for salvation. Jesus said it Himself, remember, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul saying that on the night that Jesus died, He took the bread and the cup and He broke the bread and said, this is my body and told Him to drink the cup and said, this is my blood. He said, every time you do this, you remember my cross. Every time you do this, you remember my death for you. Every time you do this, you're proclaiming my death. You remember, don't forget, Jesus said in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, he's speaking to the churches, and he said, remember what you've heard, keep it and repent. Remember. In the New Testament, lest we think that this is all this Old Testament for the pagan stuff. In the New Testament, 1 John chapter 5, the, the Apostle John says to the New Testament church, little children, keep yourselves from idols the idols of the heart. And when we do, verse 23 of our text, heaven and earth will sing and shout. The depths of the earth will break forth. The mountains will break forth into singing. The forests and every tree in it. Tree? Yes, that's what trees are made for. Trees are made to praise God when they see the redeemed of the Lord loyal and loving Him. Joy to the world, the Lord has come, the earth receive, let earth receive her king, let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. Is your heart stirred today for the longing of the glory of God among us? Is your heart stirred today for Christ the King to be received and revered and loved and followed and tear down the idols of your heart by the grace of God come to repentance come to Jesus trust him keep trusting him set the Lord Jesus apart as Lord in your heart fear not he is in control he is with you and pray with me that Christ will be exalted and proclaimed from this church and in our city and that more and more people would come to faith and walk with Christ and enter into his glory father thank you for your word today 